Great. Do sit down and turn back in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1. We're going to be looking at Daniel chapters 1 and 2, but I thought it would be a very long reading, and I will refer to the bits I'm talking about in Daniel chapter 2, so don't worry about it. Now, I wonder how you feel about living in England today. Now, there are some things I just love about life now compared to life 10 or 20 years ago. I'm quite fortunate I'm married to a techie nerd, so we tend to be early adopters of all the new technology. So I love the fact uh, that I can watch a TV show on my tablet on the train. It's wonderful. Um, It seems like yesterday that I was struggling to record my favourite TV programme onto a VHS tape. Some of you might even be too young to remember those days. Um, It seems to be the day before yesterday that we got colour TV. My parents were very late adopters of new technology. And now I can talk to and see my kids on my phone. I can find out any irrelevant information of any random celebrity I can think of in just a click. And I can see pictures of my new baby great-nephew from America minutes after he was born. So in some ways, living today is brilliant, isn't it? But the modern world is not always an easy place to live as a Christian. And I think we all know that. As I said, I live in Morden, and the little church that we worship in has stood in the same place for over a thousand years. But a lot of local people, even those who go to the sixth form college next door or primary school across the road, don't even know it's there. The one place of worship in Morden that everybody knows about is the Beitel Futu Mosque, which is the largest mosque in Western Europe, where 5,000 Ahmadiyya Muslims meet each Friday. And when I showed a group of Muslim women around our church, uh, they assumed that as Christians we must be Jehovah's Witnesses because that was the main Christian group they'd come across. And personally, it can be hard too, can't it? Um, I don't know where these statistics come from, but it was online, so it must be true. Apparently, only 28% of people in the UK uh, believe in a higher power. That sounds way too low, but apparently that's the case, compared to 38% who don't. Everybody else don't know. And in 2015, only 10% of people in England said they were, only, they were members of a church. And only 4.7% actually go to church of any kind. Now, as people who trust in God's word and seek to honour Jesus in our lives, we are in a tiny minority. And sometimes we really feel that, don't we? Uh, someone in the same group of Muslim women... Uh, commented that Christians don't believe in marriage. Well, I was slightly confused and a bit taken aback um, until she explained that none of the Christian, uh, none of the parents of the Christian children in her son's class were married. So by Christian, she meant white British. So it shows what we're up against, doesn't it? So misunderstanding and being a tiny minority. We really are out of step with the world around us. So you might see that in the offensive banter in the office, or the materialism and hedonism of your friends and neighbours, the competitive priorities of other parents at the toddler group or at the school gate, 
or perhaps even closer to home, the barbed comments of a husband or parent about your faith. So as Christians, what do we do? Do we just uh, retreat and defend, or do we engage and merge? How do we not just survive, but thrive as Christian women in 2019? So living in a country once admired for good governance and prosperity, now ridiculed for being weak, divided and immoral, a once great nation, now a political irrelevance on the global stage following laughable political decisions. A place where faith had played a central role in the national life. Now those who speak for God are mocked and threatened. Does that sound familiar? Well, welcome to Judah in 586 BC. And that is only the start. Judah, this weak nation, was an easy target for Babylon, the region's latest superpower. Following years of political oppression, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, eventually laid siege to Jerusalem, God's holy city, home to the great temple of Solomon, where the Lord lived in the midst of his people. The temple was looted, and the brightest and best of God's people were exiled to Babylon. So living in a godless, pagan society is nothing new. Being in a tiny, misunderstood minority of believers is nothing new. So if we're, not going, to, if we're going to not just survive, but thrive as Christians, we can learn a lot of the, from the book of Daniel, from those who have been there, done it, and got the T-shirt. So how should we react to this messy, godless world that we live in? And there are headings on your sheets if you would like to uh, write notes or follow where we're going. First of all, we should be distressed at the world's depravity. Let's look back at Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God, in Babylonia, and put in the treasure house of his God. Now, those two verses are absolutely horrifying. It's easy just to rush past them to get onto the story, but those two verses are absolutely horrifying. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, was a name that would have struck terror into the hearts of his contemporaries. He was the most powerful man on the planet whose armies were systematically conquering and plundering the region. He came to Jerusalem and besieged it. A siege was and is horrific. We've just come back from Dubrovnik, and there's still marks of, on the walls of the siege there. Think of the suffering of the people in Aleppo in Syria. And later, when you get home, if you can bear it, read the Book of Lamentations to get a sense of the horror of the siege of Jerusalem. Lamentations 4, verses 9 and 10 say this. Say this they, those killed by the sword are better off than those who die of famine. Racked with hunger, they waste away for lack of food from the field. With their own hands, compassionate women have cooked their own children who became their food when my people were destroyed. Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem. And then the king... 
God's anointed representative is handed over to this pagan tyrant. And the centre of worship to Yahweh, the God of heaven and earth, is ransacked. The temple, God's symbolic home, is desecrated. And to add insult to injury, the revered artefacts are put into the treasure house of their pagan god. And to add to the horror even further, we learn that it was the Lord that delivered the king of Judah into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. God's people are kicked out of the promised land under God's judgment. After years and years of prophetic warnings, God has acted. Judah has no one to blame but itself. The promise to Abraham of God's people in God's place, in God's land, under God's rule and blessing, seems to be at an end. And the reader is expected to be horrified by the extent of Judah's rejection of God's rule that has led to this judgment. So we should be distressed by the world's depravity. But are we? Do we recognise that the world we live in, the city we live in, is under God's judgment? Generally, of course, because of the fall in Genesis 3 and our banishment from God as a result. But specifically, as our society moves further and further away from God and increasingly specifically rejects him, our world will get worse. And looking at our world with God's perfect standards in mind, we should be distressed. Are we? Are we so acclimatised that we think it's normal? I know I'm often a bit like that legendary frog in the saucepan. If I was suddenly introduced to Britain now, I would be appalled. And like that frog thrown into a saucepan of boiling water, I'd leap out immediately. But because I've been brought up here, I live here, change has has come relatively slowly. I'm like the frog often who is boiled alive as the temperature just gradually increases. I don't notice how bad things are because I'm used to it. I accept a lot of stuff that should horrify me. So TV shows full of blasphemy, cynicism, crudeness. Well, what I watch is pretty tame compared to most people's standards. So it must be okay, mustn't it? Conversations about other people that are gossipy or mean that even if I didn't join in with, I put up with as just normal. Sexual ethics, the variety and number of relationships that are endorsed and encouraged by our society, but explicitly condemned in the Bible. The nastiness in social media that seems to have only got worse during this political crisis. The news of suffering around the world, refugees drowning. It only rarely grabs my attention. That kind of news is just the wallpaper of my world and easy to ignore. But God's heart is broken by the world's rejection of him. So should we be. I'm sure you know the words of uh, Jesus looking over Jerusalem in Luke 13, 34. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Jesus was distressed at the world's depravity. And we should be distressed, but like Jesus, we should not be shocked or surprised. People have always rejected God, from Adam and Eve to you and me. Before John the Baptist, the last prophet was 400 years earlier. And God's prophets, Jesus said, had always been persecuted. 
God's love has always been rejected. But Jesus' response here is distressed compassion, not dismissive condemnation. Heartbreak, not horror. And that moves on. So we should be distressed at the world's depravity, but we should also delight in God's sovereignty. So Jesus' attitude here is the key to our next response to the difficult world we live in. Yes, we should be distressed when we see the world rejecting God. But in Jesus, we see that God has not rejected the world. Despite the awful things we see around us, God is always working to bring his people home, both then and now. We can delight in God's sovereignty. And in two kings, in Jeremiah, in Lamentations, as well as here in Daniel, we see that whatever is happening at this time in Daniel, however bad, it is under God's supreme control. So again, verse 2, the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. God was not defeated by Nebuchadnezzar. God was using Nebuchadnezzar to discipline his people out of love to bring them back to himself. Uh, Jeremiah 24, verse 5 says this, he says, like these good figs, I regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I sent away from this place to the land of the Babylonians. My eyes will watch over them for their good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not uproot them. I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord. They will be my people, and I will be their God, for they will return to me with all their heart." As we look at our world, we can still be 100% certain that God is in control. Now, we may not have the specific words written into our specific situation as God's people did in Daniel's day, but we do have those same glimpses behind the scenes to show us that God is at work in what seems to be a chaotic and disastrous situation. And we also have a far more powerful example of God's sovereignty through apparent disaster in the death of the Lord Jesus. Sin, death, and Satan's best efforts were used to achieve God's ultimate victory over his most bitter enemies. And personally, as Christians, we have that wonderful promise, don't we, from Romans 8, 28 to 30. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn amongst many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. God was in control then. He is still in control now. He was working all things for good for those who loved him then, and he still is now. That good was then described in Jeremiah as returning to God with all of their heart. In Romans... It's described as being conformed to the likeness of Jesus. It's the same thing, really, isn't it? He loves us so much, he will do whatever it takes to bring us home. And at times, that will be temporarily very painful for us, as we're refined by suffering and persecution. But never as painful as it was for Jesus, who died in agony on the cross, so that we can return to God with all of our heart and be conformed to his likeness. So however rubbish our world appears, however distressed it rightly makes us, 
We can and should delight in God's sovereignty, knowing he is in charge of every situation. Now that helps, doesn't it? As we try to live in a world, uh, try to live for Jesus in a world that has rejected him and us, as we struggle to make sense of the world and wonder whether we really are on the right track, whether following Jesus is worth it, it certainly helps me to know that God does know what is going on, that somehow he is in charge of the mess. He's using that mess to make me more like Jesus and to bring me home to him. So although the sins, the world's sin-created and sin-fueled mess should distress us, we should never despair because we can delight that God is sovereign. No mess can stop his plans for God's people to return to his eternal and perfect land under his rule and blessing. Now that, I'm sure you're wondering, is where Daniel finally comes onto the stage. How is this one young lad going to negotiate living in his, this distressing and messy world? And how will knowing that God is in control help him? So Daniel was determined to be distinctive. Now Daniel was one of Judah's elite of the elite. Only the skillful, wealthy and gifted were taken to Babylon. The poor who had nothing to offer were left behind. And of those that were taken, Daniel and his friends were the top of the pile. Verse 3 and 4. The king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. Now, it's a classic imperialistic policy. You re-educate the next generation so that they will be on your side. They will think like you, they will act like you, and they will support you against the peasants back home who they will have little in common with. It will make them less likely to want to lead a rebellion. Now, the British Empire did it by encouraging the future leaders of the colonial countries to go to Eton and Cambridge and theoretically love the British forever. Get him young and brainwash them. And Daniel went along with it, up to a point. He was okay with being part of the programme. He was okay with being educated in a pagan system in preparation for serving a capricious and cruel pagan dictator. But he did not belong to them. He was determined to be distinctive. From the start, this young lad, people reckon he was about 15 years old, was prepared to take risks to maintain his identity as one of God's people. Daniel refused to eat the food from the king's table. Now, it's not entirely clear why. Maybe he didn't want to benefit materially from being in the king's service. It's possible that the food had been offered to pagan gods, but it doesn't say so here. It certainly wouldn't have been kosher. Some have suggested that eating this food meant being in the king's inner circle, which had been a step too far. But Daniel certainly seems to be in the inner circle later on. Whatever it was, from the very start, Daniel was making it clear that he did not belong to them. Other, more important rules applied. It was a very risky decision, not just for Daniel. His three friends, later known as Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, uh, were brought in on it too. The chief official was not exaggerating when he said in verse 10 that King would have his head if Daniel's health suffered. 
And the guard was the one who had to give the food to the boys. Presumably, he would have got into trouble too. But Daniel knew that God could be trusted. Daniel knew that God was sovereign, not just in Judah, but also in Babylon. So the risk was not really a risk at all. Honouring God is ultimately always the least risky option. And God honoured Daniel's stand, in verse 9, by causing the official to show favour and compassion to Daniel, and by keeping his, him and his friends healthy, and by helping them in their studies. So in the end, they are ten times better than all the others. I think there's also a more subtle stand that Daniel makes. Another imperial policy of most uh, other ancient Near Eastern kings was to rename those that they conquered. Now, I don't know if you ever saw either the original or the remake of the um, series Roots on TV. Um, the original series was huge in the 70s, and I watched it then, and they did it again a couple of years ago. You get a slave, Kunta Kinte, brought from Africa to America. He was renamed Toby by his mistress to remove his African identity. A very powerful way of changing somebody's identity by changing their name. Daniel, whose name means God is judge, had his name changed to Belteshazzar, which we learn in chapter 4, verse 8, as now Nebuchadnezzar explains, it's after the name of one of his gods. The king might have changed Daniel's name and referred to him as Belteshazzar, but throughout the book of Daniel, Daniel is always called Daniel. Just as Kunta Kinte is always Kunta Kinte. A reminder of who Daniel really is. God is his judge. Daniel was determined to be distinctive. So you've got Daniel right at the heart of a godless system. Involved and engaged, but never compromised. He was always God's man. He could be one of God's people under God's rule and blessing even when he was not in God's land. I think that is a really tough balancing act to get right, isn't it? The temptation for us, I think, is to either be involved and engaged, uh, sorry, involved, engaged and compromised, or uninvolved, disengaged and not compromised. And I think which way we're tempted to jump is largely down to temperament. Some of us will feel more naturally at home in the world out there and fit in just a little bit too well, justifying a less than godly lifestyle uh, by saying, well, it's vital that Christians are involved in all kinds uh, of issues and all kinds of environments. Look who Jesus mixed with. And some of us will feel threatened and uncomfortable outside the safety of church and groups of Christian friends, justifying the holy huddle mentality with short of the import, talk of the importance of a distinctive godly lifestyle, the importance of keeping our children safe from negative influences. The truth is that Daniel and Jesus, their lives show us that the truth is both and, not either or. Fully engaged and involved in an ungodly world, but distinctively godly and righteous. Now, if it was just Jesus, we might say, well, he was God, so of course he could do it. But Daniel was just a bloke, and he did it too. So for us, it is at least worth trying, isn't it? So honestly, which way are you most tempted to jump? The protection of the holy huddle, or the way of the, the, way of the world? I think it's very easy to be critical 
are those whose natural inclination is to jump the other way. I think many Christians from both sides of the temperamental divide would have found things to criticise about Daniel. Working for the civil service. Surely he should have gone into full-time ministry. Okay, underground, missionary work in Babylon. Surely that's what he should have been up to. Or refusing the king's food so early on in his career? How would he ever progress to have the influence he could use for God if he was so picky about something so small? But wonderfully, God was not critical. Verse 17, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, pagan literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. So if you are a holy huddler, get out there, get involved, get engaged, make some non-Christian friends, join a club or a choir, befriend the other mums, particularly the ones that nobody else is befriending, like Jesus would have done. Remember, God so loved the world, he sent his only son into the world. It was tough, but it was the only way. If the millions of people in London who don't know Jesus are ever going to hear about him and get to know him, we need to get out there. But if you're tempted to go the way of the world, how might you be compromising? Do your friends and colleagues know that you're a Christian? That God is your judge? That it's his opinion that you value most highly? What would that look like for you? It will look different for different people. On a basic level, are you willing to be different and to stand out? What you talk about or don't talk about? Are you known as somebody who the others can trust? Are you willing to put forward an unpopular but Christian point of view, graciously and lovingly? Are you distinctive in the way you spend your money, your ambitions, what you want for your children? So like like Daniel, determine to be distinctive. And like Daniel, display God's grace. So here's Daniel. He's a young foreigner working for an unpredictable boss. He's into witchcraft and astrology. And is in the habit of cutting cutting off the heads of those who disagrees with him. What would you do? I think, having made a little stand for vegetarianism and survived, I think I'd have just kept my head down. Kept well away from compromising situations and just got on with my job. But Daniel is Daniel and God is his judge. That's not enough, is it? It was never going to be. Hiding and trying to avoid being corrupted by the world isn't God's way. It wasn't Jesus' way, and it wasn't Daniel's way either. So Daniel uses his position to display God's grace. He puts his head way above the parapet and takes or even creates opportunities, very risky opportunities, to show God's goodness to the king and to his magicians and astrologers. And this is in Daniel chapter 2. It's a great little story. Unfortunately, we don't have uh, long to unpack it. Daniel is still a trainee in verse 1. It says it was the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Daniel's only just arrived in Babylon. His three-year course has barely started. And the king has a troubling dream. He calls in his magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers, and demands that they tell him what the dream means, which is an impossible task because he won't tell them what the dream was. If they can, in verse 5, they, if they can't, rather, they will be cut into pieces and their houses will be turned into piles of rubble. If they can, they'll be richly rewarded. It is not fair. 
and the magicians plead for their lives, which infuriates Nebuchadnezzar even further, who orders the immediate execution of not just the guys who failed the test, but all the wise men in Babylon, apparently, in verse 13, including the trainees. The king is a psychopath, or actually just a typical ancient Near Eastern despot used to getting his own way. He's troubled, sleeping badly, and with an explosive temper. Daniel is cool as a cucumber. Remember, he's still a teenager, a foreigner, recently dragged from his family and home, now facing a grisly and unjust death. He calmly approaches the commander of the king's guard, don't know if you notice, it says, with wisdom and tact, and gets a chance to speak to the king. He calmly goes to the king, whose food he recently refused to eat, and asks for a bit of time before coming back to interpret the dream. At the time, he has no idea what the dream was or how to interpret it. He went back to his student digs he shared with Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and asked them to pray. Wonderfully, that night, God showed Daniel the dream and how to interpret it. Then, Daniel praises God and once again shows how he is able to be so brave and so calm. He knows God, who, is, who he is and what he can do. And he says he is the king of kings, wiser than the wisest wise man. God may be the God of his ancestors, but he is the God of the whole world. In verse, verse, verse 21, why should he be afraid? Why should he be anxious? God is God and always in control. Now, Daniel is now in possession of some very useful information, very beneficial for his future career. But he is entirely unselfish. He asked the guard for all the magicians' lives to be spared, and before the king, he gives credit to God. In contrast, if you read this later, check out Arioch, the guard, who takes all the credit for himself for finding Daniel, who had actually volunteered uh, the information. Daniel, as I said, gives all the credit to God, the revealer of mysteries from start to finish. Daniel displays God's grace to a pagan king and an ungrateful bunch of magicians. God revealed the dream to Daniel, so according to verse 30, Nebuchadnezzar's mind could be put at rest. God gave the dream to Nebuchadnezzar so that he could understand his place in human history, a significant and glorious place, the head of gold in the picture in the dream, the king of kings, but only temporarily and only because God has put him there. Verse 44 says, only God's kingdom is eternal. Now, it's a very risky message to give to a megalomaniac, but the detail in Daniel's description of the dream proved he was talking sense. The king was amazed and honours Daniel. But more significantly, in verse 47, he honours God. He says, surely he is the God of gods and king of kings, the revealer of mysteries, for you are able to reveal this mystery. Daniel displays God's grace to those around him in a hostile and dangerous situation, knowing that he risks being misunderstood and rejected and quite possibly killed. It was a phenomenally stressful situation. When I'm in a stressful situation, I'm not known for my tact and wisdom. Daniel was. I tend to become pretty self-centred. Daniel didn't. When it all seemed to be going so well, I'd probably want to make myself look good. Daniel didn't. He wanted God to look good instead. Same as Jesus. Displaying God's grace to those around him in a hostile and dangerous situation. Being misunderstood, rejected and killed. The night before he died, thinking of others. Displaying God's grace as he washed their feet. On trial, calm and in control. Trusting in his heavenly father. And on the cross, praying for those who are torturing him. 
Being distinctive is not an end in itself. We are to be distinctive as we honour God as our Lord and live in a way that pleases him, regardless of what the world thinks. But honouring him and living to please him will always mean displaying God's grace to those around us, including psychopathic megalomaniac kings or a bloodthirsty mob at the foot of the cross. We will want to do good to others, however they treat us. And the ultimate good is always that they should know God for themselves. So what will that look like for us? Firstly, we need to make sure that we know God like Daniel did. Spend time in his word and in prayer, building up our knowledge of him and our relationship with him. Like Daniel and the Lord Jesus, pray for courage, for opportunities and for humility to give God the glory. Pray that in every encounter you'd be able to display God's grace in some small way. As a bare minimum, it will mean treating people with tact and wisdom, as Daniel did, even when we're in stressful situations. In traffic jams, late for school pickup, when our boss has added to the pile to be done now at 5.15 on a Friday afternoon. Pray that you would display God's grace in those situations. And like Daniel and like Jesus, pray particularly before situations where it might be tough to be distinctive and display God's grace. Maybe with your non-Christian family on holiday or next Christmas, starting a new job, a school reunion. As we display God's grace, we'll be wanting to give glory to God, not to ourselves, as we do good to others. And we also need to be praying that we'll be able to display God's grace to others by sharing the gospel. Remember, as Daniel, uh, remember Daniel, remember that God is the King of Kings and the Lord of the seasons. We don't need to be afraid, even speaking to our boss, the school mum at the school gate, the cool mum at the school gate, the Muslim lady at work, the loud, scary one whose every other word is an expletive. The greatest way we can display God's grace is by introducing them to Jesus. And it won't happen every time, but occasionally those risky, sometimes terrifying conversations will get a response like Nebuchadnezzar's. Surely your God is the God of gods and Lord of kings. So as you look around your community, you should be distressed by the depravity of a world that has rejected God. But that should drive you to your knees as you remember to delight in God's sovereignty. He is at work in the mess, bringing people home. We should be living distinctive and godly lives, taking every opportunity to display God's grace to a lost and needy world. Let's pray as we finish. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are in control uh, of every situation. Thank you that you are in control in the 6th century BC. Thank you that you control now. And I pray that you would help us, like Daniel, to be distinctive and godly in the way we live for you. And I pray that you'd enable us in every circumstance to display your grace to those we meet. Uh, For Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen.